Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh out loud humor and hitting you between the eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants because here we go. All right, so we're going to start in John chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 16. I'm going to read that scenario um, in John, and then I'm also going to read it in Matthew, just so you can see some of the different verbiage. And then I'm just going to go bullet point down what took place using kind of all the Gospels, okay? So John 6, verse 16, when evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. Okay, for Matthew 14, verse 22, same event, different perspective. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You know, one thing I just noticed, I didn't even put in my notes. Did you, did you hear how many times? Maybe we should read out loud. Um, you know, like when we're doing our own study, read the scripture out loud because I think you hear things maybe from your own voice that you don't pay attention to when you're reading. Do you hear how many times uh, in Matthew it said immediately? I don't think, though, anything seemed immediate to them because they've been struggling for a really long time, somewhere between six to nine hours they've been struggling. And so they're probably not feeling, but, but when it comes to Jesus being where he needs to be, and when we truly need him, the word in Matthew is what? Immediately, he was there. So I just thought, that's just free for you right there. That's some free stuff. All right, so after reading that, here are the details. So immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Why? Do you remember what we talked about last week? Why did he send them away? Because he knew what was in the minds of the people at the feeding of the 5,000 and what was in their mind. They wanted to make him king even by force, right? And so he knows this. And so we talked at the end of last week that isn't it interesting that he allowed the disciples to be swept up by the wind, but he didn't allow the disciples to be swept up by the wind of the crowd. 
right? Because we taught last week, there is a difference between testing and tempting. And we looked at the scripture uh, last week that talked about, listen, God will test us for the purpose of what? Growth, strengthening our faith, right? Um, But he will not tempt anyone into evil. He is not out laying traps. That's what our enemy does. He tests us to increase our faith. He doesn't tempt us to trip, trip us up. And I think that's the difference between the two that winds that are blowing here. Because the wind of the crowd would have caused them a lot of confusion. I believe it would have tripped them up. Because it would have fed what was already kind of in their presupposition about who Jesus or who the Messiah would be. And I mean, this was an event, right? We talked about this. This is the biggest crowd they've ever seen. This was a serious revival happening here. This was a corporate miracle that everybody experienced. Isn't this what they've wanted? He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. They're trying to get a huge following. Man, this is happening. And then out of the blue, he says, hey, you guys... um, put all that down, hop in the boats, and you need to go to the other side. And we laughed last week about them saying, uh, wait a minute. They had to leave, and Jesus dismissed the crowds. Remember that? He got to close the show, and they didn't even get to be there. We talked about last week that, yes, he is the star, but these are the boys of the band. The best part is at the end, when you, you close out the show, good night, everybody. I mean, this, this was an event, right? And so, yes, they weren't the star, but they were the boys. They would have gotten pats on the back. They would have gotten recognition. I mean, this was going to be a happening event. But instead, he said, nope, I need you to get in the boat right now. I'm going to finish this out. I'm going to close this out. You guys start rowing. Because that would have been something that would have tripped them up. It would have caused confusion. But then he sends them into an actual storm, the winds of the storm. But there... Is that going to bring confusion? It's going to bring greater clarity of who he really is. Because remember, he is trying to teach these young men who he really is. What the Messiah is, the Son of God. He is deity. He is the Logos. He is the Word. He is the one that created all things. He isn't just... Uh, a miracle. He is the source of all things. That is who he is. And he wants them to grasp that because it's going to get a little crazy on the other side of the shore. Just let me tell you. Very often, I think I said this last week, when we're in a storm, very often we want to say, God, get me out of this. But instead, can we change our verbiage to what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? Have you ever found yourself back in a familiar storm? (laughs) I'm like, Lord, teach me. Like, let me get it. Let this hard head get it. I am sick of these same familiar winds. Does anybody ever feel like that? What can I get out of it? Here they must have been thinking, we have served all day got no kudos, and now we're being beat to the pulp, beat to a pulp by the winds. Can't imagine what was going through their mind. The other thing we see is that it was evening. So it, it is now it has gotten dark. The boat is a long way from shore. Uh, one gospel says three to four miles. They've been drifting off course, trying to remain on course. And I thought, here they are, alone in the dark, right? What does darkness often represent? 
A lack of understanding? Okay, so in some ways, can you, can you see? Here they are, alone in the dark. They do not understand this at all, this whole scenario. Uh, they're drifting, and they're fighting to stay on course. Have you ever fought just to stay on course? I'm telling you, there are times you're in a storm, and all you can do is just fight to survive. That's all you can do. You just got to survive this one. You just got to keep rowing, keep rowing, keep rowing. It's like Nemo, keep on swimming, keep on swimming. That's what you do. I'll never forget going through some of my trials. Uh, uh, there was a, what is her name? Nicole Nordeman sings this song. Um, this is the sound of surviving. And I'm like, that's about all I can sing. This is just the sound of surviving. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been in a storm that you're just like, I just got to survive it. I got to get through it. I got to keep on rowing. And that's what they're doing. And you got to give it to them. I mean, they have been fighting and fighting and fighting these waves. They haven't given up. They have continued their effort. And it said that the wind was against them. Mark also adds in there that he saw that they were making headway, but painfully. The winds are against them. That don't seem right to me. How in the world, if you're doing exactly what Jesus asked you to do, to get in the boat and go to the other side, why is it then that the wind would not be at your back? Why is it that the wind would actually be against you? I thought, what is this? A lesson in countercultural? Counterculture? That culture will always be pushing against you and you have to keep rowing? Is it about being obedient through suffering? Is it the idea of that to follow Jesus, we have to pick up our cross and follow him? Following me doesn't always mean that your sickness will be healed, your bellies will be full. Why? It's not your home. In this world, you will have trouble. You won't escape it. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. But I think it also can be a lesson that human effort is not enough, that we need supernatural help. Their work has not been wasted. I mean, they have been rowing for six to nine hours. Their work has not been wasted. It says they have been making progress in Mark, but what? Painfully, until you see that they then have a divine touch and they're gonna end up on shore. What does that show me? I cannot do this in my own strength. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Yes, you keep on rowing, but we all need what? Him. We need divine intervention, we need him. He is the source of all things. In ministry, it's the same, right? I told you last week, I can do my best as a human being to teach, but the bottom line is who is the teacher? The Holy Spirit is the teacher. God draws you. We're going to see that in the scripture today. He draws you to himself. And so I think, you know, sometimes we think, oh, if we're out doing God's work, it's going to be easy breezy. Or if we're all in with Jesus, we're going to have victory. What? They just had a victory, didn't really get to enjoy it. We're put in a boat, 
had to row and were basically not getting much and the wind was against them. They were fully in the will of God. He told them to do that. And it's hard and suffering, but guess what? They need him in that boat. And so I think there's all kinds of stuff you could actually journal about. If you pondered that this week, what are you trying to do in your own strength? How are you not trusting the Lord? Have you invited him in the boat? Or are you just going to sit there and row by yourself? I mean, there's all kinds of things that you could apply that to your life. So think on that in your notes. Go, come back and look at this. Ask yourself about this situation. Do you get frustrated when the wind is against you? Do you think, oh, God must not have me here because it's hard? No, God may have you there because it's hard. And so there's a lot of things, I think, to ponder with that. Um, they had, they basically, the fourth hour, if you want to know, is about between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, okay? Um, and it says that he came out to them walking on the water. So let's say they struggled a really long time. So if you think they left between 6 and 9 p.m. and that he finally came to them between 3 and 6 p.m., you're talking about anywhere from 6 to 9 hours they've been out fighting these waves. When this happens, we wonder, God, do you not see? Are you not aware? Do you not care? But what did Mark say in the gospel? He saw them. His eye was on them the whole time. And he let them struggle that long? Do you not care? He allowed them to struggle. Isn't it interesting that he allowed them to struggle even when he was with them? Hmm. One time they faced a storm and he was in the boat. The next time, he was close by, but he wasn't in the boat. He's given them. I love, I wanted to read you, I have a friend who is a, an, uh, an artist, she sings, she's amazing, and her name is Stacy Frenes, and she wrote this song, and from the moment I heard it, I love the lyrics of the song, and it's called Storms, and she said she wrote it for her children, and I remember thinking, ah, oh, that is so good, so I'm going to read you the lyrics, because it's really cool, it's called Storms. Everybody wishes you the sunshine, like it's magic some kind of wonder drug. Everybody wishes you more blue skies, like being happy is good enough. My love, I wish you more. I wish you storms, beautiful storms, the kind that break you and make you more tender than before, storms. Everybody tries to stay protected from the dangers of this uncharted life. Beauty is never where you expect it. In the ruins, treasure hides. I love that line. In the ruins, when you think everything is wrecked, you find treasures hidden in the ruins. And so, my love, be warned. I wish you storms, beautiful storms, the kind that wreck you and take you to undreamed shores. Storms. I wish you storms, my love, storms. Surrender to the tempest and the turbulence. Let yourself be taken by the wind. Feel the naked beauty of the pounding rain. Hear the thunder calling out your name. Let the ocean roar and lightning flash. Ride the waves that push against your back. And when you arrive, you'll never know. And when you arrive, you'll know why there were storms. Isn't that beautiful? 
you know what? We're doing our kids a disservice. If you do not let them experience storms, this is the great teacher that we're studying today. And he allowed his disciples to struggle, to struggle while he was there because he knows that it is through the struggle that you grow. I found an article, it said, reasons why it's important to let your child struggle. Struggle leads to growth. Struggle is an essential component of growth. If we only engage in activities that come easy to us, we're not stretching ourselves. And if we don't stretch ourselves, we will never reach our full potential. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to adapt. When we consistently repeat a difficult activity, our brain forms a pathway and the activity becomes easier with time. In addition to growing your brain, struggle fuels character growth. Children develop inner strength, persistence, focus, determination. We know this. How do we know it and we not do it? I mean, do you think the first time I ran, it was just so easy? I could not run down the block. Down the block, I thought, I can't do it. I'm just not made for running. I came up with every excuse. I don't run. I don't run unless someone chases me with a weapon. And then at that moment, I'm just going to lay down and say, make the shot clean because I don't care. I don't run. I mean, I said it all. I did all of that. And then, and, but the fact is, I was just too mentally weak to overcome pain. That was just pain. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. And then the further I went, the more, we know this. And you go and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm stronger than I think I am. Oh my gosh. And then your body feels stronger and then something happens inside of your soul where you kind of feel stronger too. I don't know if it's because if the world falls apart, I can outbeat all of y'all in a race. I don't know. I can run a little bit further. You know, all that. But you do. You strengthen. And when your kids have to go through struggles, they strengthen from the inside and they have confidence to know, okay, it's the cookie jar. I've talked to you about it. I got through that, I can get through this. And it strengthens, it strengthens you. In many ways, I think if I hadn't gone through some of my struggles, I'm not sure uh, I could have survived this, this greatest one. Um, struggling enough versus struggling too much. Teach children that asking for help is not giving up. Instead, it's another strategy, strategy that children can use to solve a tough problem. But I remember a teacher telling me, I don't, in some program, it kind of made me mad back then, but she said, no, you try it three times yourself before you ask for help. Don't ask for help as an excuse. You really give it a shot, but then be willing to ask for help. But help does not mean we do it. And don't think that I did projects, okay, for my kids. My kids grew up at a local Christian school that will not be mentioned when they were in elementary school. And I am telling you, those projects, in my opinion, were ridiculous that these kids had to do. First off, they cost me too dang much money I didn't have. <clears throat> and I was thinking, I can think of a free way to teach this. But despite that, then it became a competition between the parents of whose projects were the best. As Zachary is laying down on the floor asleep because he can't do this. And, you know, and it became about me. And then by the time it happened, we're all helping our children carry in these projects that are really ours. And we're so proud. And then when we get the grades, we come out after school. Hey, what'd you get on your project? What'd you, I mean, really? 
It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It says it builds problem-solving skills. We know that. Through the process of struggling, children develop creative problem-solving skills. Without struggle, children never encounter problems to work through. Even when a strategy doesn't work, children realize that mistakes and failures are valuable lessons. That's huge. Let them fail. I promise you they think the failure is bigger than it really is. Like, who cares if they get a bad grade in third grade? It's not going to affect them for life. But if they have bad habits all the way through, the bad grade senior year might. Right? Or they come undone. Trust me, I'm teaching you this from experience of a huge failure in this situation. I would be lying if I told you I didn't write a couple of Stanford papers. Yeah. I mean, and the funny thing is, like, I kind of wish I wasn't able to because then he wouldn't even have asked me. But I remember he, he had concussions um, and he had been out of school because of concussion protocol. You can't go to school for like two weeks or think. And if you're at Stanford, you're behind. I mean, it's, and he's playing 2D1 sports. It was horrendous. He called me one day. He's like, mom, you got to write this paper. I said, what? I go, I don't, I'm not in class. I don't go to Stanford, Zachary. And he's like, I don't care, mom. I'm behind. I have all these finals. I have all these papers. I've got this. I, I'm, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to pass. And I'm like, well, what did he goes, I'll send you the prompt. <laughs> so he sends me the prompt, and I'm reading this prompt of this whole marketing class, and I'm like, holy snap. I, so I, I look, his dad looked at it and goes, that's not me, that's not me, that's all you. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I spent an entire day, I am talking about this and it's recorded, but sorry about it. I should have an honorable Stanford degree, okay? <laughs> I studied that prompt and I picked out things in it that I could Google and study. I studied for eight hours to write this paper. I then sent it. He's writing another, well, actually two more, trying to catch up and doing all this stuff. Oh my gosh, if we'd have been in the SEC, I could have hired someone to write all those papers. But at Stanford, you got to do it on your own or with your mother. So I sent, I sent the paper in. And so when the, finally the grade came out, and all these boys were talking about this exact service because they were talking about when I wrote that paper, and it came back and I got a C, and I went, <laughs> a C? I go, I don't get C's on papers. What is that? And all those boys looked at me and they're like, Mama Hoff, if I'd have gotten a C on that paper, I would have been so, C's get degrees, Mama Hoff, C's get degrees. And I was like, oh my gosh. But here's the thing, we, we have to let him struggle. I mean, what would have happened, you know? He'd have found a way, he'd have figured it out, or maybe not, I don't know, but just don't be like me. You know what? That's it. <laughs> uh, struggling fosters a growth mindset. Through struggle, children realize that their brains can grow. They embrace the struggle. Struggling teaches children to manage emotion. That is huge. I believe that's why we have so much anxiety today. Not only do I think it's social media, which don't even get me started on, um, I believe we have not trained them to deal with emotion. Emotion is just emotion. It's emotion. It's going to change. It comes, it goes. Um, and so how do we manage the emotion to be able to get it done? 
All of these things are awesome. Struggling builds superheroes, how to teach self-regulation. The bottom line is this, the master teacher knows this. And so he allows them to go through a struggle as his eye is on them because it is a teaching experience. They are learning. His eye was never off of them for one minute. He watched them as they struggle. And guess what? When it really got serious and he needed to be there, what was the word we heard? Immediately. But you should not do for somebody else something they can do for themselves. According to Jordan Peterson. Okay, it says, he came out to them walking on the water. I love that. He came out walking on the water. Listen, ain't nothing getting in the way of Jesus coming to them. He came to them. Nothing could get in his way. No distance was too far. Darkness, no way. Winds, are you kidding me? He is present. And he says, take heart, it is I. The language he uses here echoes God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. In other words, I am. I am is here. What is he saying? What did that mean? I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the source of all things. Anything you can imagine that you would need, I can say to that, I am. I love Romans 8.38. Let's look, look at that. I should have it memorized. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His eye was on them. He let them struggle, but he never took his eye off and nothing would get in the way because he had a straight highway to them. And let me tell you, we've, this whole story is in the context of the Exodus, right? Because they're headed to the Passover. And we looked at the symbolism of this miraculous bread that he provided for them. That's why they wanted to make him king. But look at this. Another thing you think of in the Exodus, right? Is when they were freed, but then they got backed up against that Red Sea and they began to doubt and they were struggling and we should have stayed in Egypt. And what happens? He splits the Red Sea and they walk through on dry ground. But let me tell you what, this Jesus, he don't need to split nothing because he can make the seas his highways. He will get to you. That's what he's trying to show them. I am God. I am the I am. I am not a political leader, Messiah, who's here to just heal your sickness and fill your bellies and free you from the Romans. This is a much bigger deal. I'm God. I can walk on water. I just, oh, I would love to have been there for that. How about you? Mm. It says they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost. I love that. I mean, for real, you would kind of think he's a ghost. But I'm going to tell you what, when you're struggling, when you're in a storm, very often you're not seeing clearly. And very often, he don't look like you think he does. You start to wonder, are you real? Are you what I thought you were? And he says, no, I am. I am. I am here. Peter's request. So Peter says, Lord, if that is you, command me to come out to you. So he, he requests. We have this attempt. And then we see that um, he sinks. And he says, oh, Lord, save me. 
Um, it's really interesting. I, I wonder, is he enthusiastic or impulsive, this Peter? I don't know. Maybe he's sick of rowing the boat. It's a little mundane for Peter. I don't know. He's kind of used to jumping out of boats. Um, I can't give you his motive, but I can tell you this. He wanted, to be to, he wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. Jesus seemed to be managing the storm just fine, walking a straight line to the shore. So Peter wanted it. But the only way he, it could happen is if, he, if Jesus commanded it. He knew the power of Jesus's word. And if he commanded it, then it would be possible. And so he did command it. And was it possible? Did he walk on water? Yes, he did. But then, then he sank. His faith spurred him out of the boat, but it didn't sustain him through the waves. When he lost focus of Jesus and focused on the waves, he sank. Fear went out. Faith to fear in seconds. All of a sudden, he became a sinking stone. Can you relate? I can. I can do this in a matter of 10 seconds. Can you? I can do this. I seriously can go from hand-raising worship to walking out and something hitting me and being hit by fear. I can one minute be so focused on Jesus and the next minute I'm focused on every earthly circumstance around me, right? So you, you've got to give it to Peter. Like he wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be. And honestly, I think for Peter, the greatest lessons he ever learned what made him that rock is failure, is failure. He was willing to risk it all to be with Jesus and he learned through his failures. But I find it very interesting that most sermons about Jesus walking on the water are always focused around Peter. And what is interesting to me about that is in Peter's own gospel. So you know that Mark is really Peter's gospel because Mark is being the scribe for Peter's firsthand account. So in that, Mark doesn't even include it. Why would Peter not include this scenario in his own gospel. I mean, if it's something to be so proud of, the fact that he had a faith that would get out of the boat and walk to Jesus, why didn't he include it? Maybe he didn't think that was the greatest event of his life because he, he sank. Or maybe after his failures, when he told the story, he realized it's not about me. This story's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so humbly, he turns his perspective. He doesn't even include that part. The other thing I find interesting is that he looked at Peter and said, oh, you have little faith. But he didn't say that to the other guys. And were they bad for not getting out of the boat? I mean, didn't he say, get in the boat and go to the other side? Weren't they being obedient? Sometimes I think we focus so much on Peter jumping out of the boat and that, that you know, extravagant experience of walking on the water and then being distracted by the winds and sinking that we forget about the guys who are faithful to stay in the boat and keep rowing. Sometimes there may be a time where God spurs you to step outside of the boat for sure. But that doesn't mean that is everyone's experience. Sometimes it takes more faith to stay in the boat and keep rowing. I believe. I've experienced both. And so sometimes God calls you to stay. And he calls you to stay in that struggle and keep rowing even when you feel like the winds are totally in your face. 
And he's like, listen, your effort is not in vain, although it has been painful. I will, I will be in your boat. I think there's all kinds of amazing application to this story. And I think it's really interesting that in every one of these gospels, you can go back. Let me give you the references so you can go back and look. So it's Matthew 14, 22 through 33, if you have that. It's Mark 6, 45 through 52. And obviously it's John 6, 16 through 21. And then it's Luke 9, 10 through 17. Those are the accounts of the walking on the water. Every one of them indifferently. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus gets in the boat and the wind ceases. Matthew says that they worshiped and called him the son of God. Mark says that they were astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I'm gonna come back and kind of play with that in my own journal because I like words that um, kind of connect. And here you have in Mark this gospel of basically of Peter who is called the stone or the rock, <laughs> the stone sunk in this situation. And it says that what they had been thinking was they didn't understand the loaves and his heart was hardened. There's something beautiful in that. I don't know what yet because I haven't spent time, but notice those kinds of words. And in John... It just says that they were immediately on shore. It doesn't even say anything about the wind stopping. It just says they were immediately on the shore. The sea obeyed him. You have this picture of when he got in the boat, maybe the wind shifted. And they were immediately there. The point of John is this. He's God. That's it. He's God. And when he is in your boat, you will arrive at the destination. You just keep rowing. Don't you worry about it. He will get you to undreamed shores. That is what is going to happen. And so you have this beautiful uh, miracle that's personal to the disciples in the middle of this feeding of the 5,000 where they were about to make him king by force. He sweeps them out of there. Uh, into that, doesn't want them to get wrapped up in that confusion, that wind, but he lets them get wrapped up in the wind of the storm because it's there that they are going to have more clarity about who he is. He is God. He is God. And no matter where you are, his eye is on you. Both the wind and the waves and the disciples were both in his hand. Nothing was out of his uh, sight and he cared for them. And nothing could keep him from getting to them. That He made the seas his highways. And the whole point of it is this. It doesn't matter what the situation you are in. If God is in your boat, you will arrive at your destination. That's it. This entire section is trying to show us he is the end all be all. He is not someone that gives us what we want. He should be what we want. And he's trying to change their perspective. And that's what happens in this next dialogue. So in verse 22, it says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that he had been only, there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place 
where they had been where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I think that should have been a funny scene. They're like, how in the world? How did he get there? What is going on? I know they left. He didn't go with them. There's no other boat. He ain't here. So the bottom line is he's not here. So we need to go find him. And so all these boats, the storm sent a lot of boats over on that harbor. And so we need to jump in those boats and go to where they are. So that's what they do. In verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them. He never answers their question much. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Jesus answered them. I don't think he answers some of mine either. Does he always answer yours? I think he's always like, Shannon, you're asking the wrong question. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God, his Father, God the Father has set his seal. Verse 25 it looks like they seem to kind of small talk. When did you leave? Because, you know, we totally would have followed you. We had every intention to follow you. But Jesus gets straight to the point. Yes, you would have followed me. But not because you saw a sign. In other words, not because you believe in me, but because you were given a free meal. That's why you would follow me. What is the point of signs? Why did John point out these signs? Why does he call them signs? Because they point towards something. These things I have written, I've chosen them specifically for you to read so that you would know what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life. I mean, it's the whole theme. It runs through all of it. And he is saying, you did not follow me because the sign pointed you to who I am. You followed me because the sign said free lunch. That's what's happening. He says, quit striving to fulfill your earthly needs while completely ignoring your eternal ones. Quit focusing on the bread and start focusing on the source. These people aren't following him because they want more of God or because they're hungry to know more about Jesus, but because they want the goodies that accompany him. Listen to that again. They don't want him. They want the goodies that accompany him. Colossians 3.24 says what? Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us what? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame to sit, sit down at the right hand of God the Father. Our focus should be on the things above. C.S. Lewis says this, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. He's good. Jesus' own words in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Is it not the same message of the Samaritan woman? I mean, he doesn't change his message. This that you're after, this earthly water, 
Every day you come and draw and come and draw and come and draw. It never satisfies. But the water I give you will be like a living spring that bubbles up within you. I am the living water. He is basically saying the same. Look at verse 27. It says, do not work. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will what? Give you. Don't, so don't work for earthly things that satisfy because I have a gift for you. You see what he is offering, you can't work for. Now they're not gonna understand that. What he is offering, eternal life, it is an absolute free gift. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it or deserve it. You receive it. You believe and you come. And so he's saying, do not work for this. Instead, accept this free gift that I am here to give you. In verse 28, it says, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So don't you expect that to be their response? Have you picked up how they, how they track with him? He just said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. Okay, so I shouldn't be working for food that perishes, but I should be working for something that endures. But then he says, which the son of man will give you. So they immediately say, makes sense to me. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, they say, tell us how to receive this food that will last forever. What must we do? Makes sense to me because this is the mentality of the old covenant. This is how they've been trained to think. Do you realize that we've been trained to think a lot of ways? Do you realize that that is what it talks about, the transformation of your mind? You're taking a lot of the ways that your mind has been trained to think and you're transforming them to think like Jesus. And there are some things that we've been trained to think even spiritually that are not right. And so we have to struggle over that. But think about this. Deuteronomy 28. Let's, let's consider how they were trained. Okay? Deuteronomy 28 is talking about the old covenant. This is what was said to them by Moses. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the other nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. And he goes down and he lists all kinds of blessings that will take place. And then look at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then what do you think is listed below that? All the different curses. So they knew that the old covenant, that this was a conditional covenant with stipulations and expectations both ways. Of course, the problem is they broke it, what? All the time. They broke it all the time. And instead of allowing that to show them that they could not keep the old covenant, right? And that because of that, they were broken and they needed a savior. 
and they needed to fall on the mercy of the Lord because they couldn't keep it. Instead of doing that, they ended up taking on what I call a debtor's mentality. Almost as if the way the pagans looked at, not almost, pretty much, as if the, the way the pagans looked at their God. God was always mad. Why? Because we can't keep all these, these rules. And so, what must we do to appease our God so that he will send on us blessing? You can see it all through. If you walk through 1 Samuel with me, you see them doing that left and right. They are basically worshiping the one true God, but they are worshiping him like the pagans worship their God. They are thinking, what if we do this for God, then he will do this for me. Let me ask you, do we still have some of that mentality? Yeah, because if you grew up in a... In a in, kind of a legalistic background, and maybe they didn't even intend for it to be legalistic, but that's how you heard it, where they taught you the behaviors of what a Christian should be like. These are the things that God loves. And you heard over and over, obedience leads to blessing. And in your mind, in this first world country, in the United States of America, blessing meant comfort, ease, that kind of thing. It sure as heck didn't mean suffering. Although, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you go through that. No, that was not on my radar. I didn't consider that pure joy at all. Um, but you have that mentality that God is always mad um, and that I need to appease him so that he loves me so that he will then bless me. And this is the situation that is going on with them. So they're saying, what must we do, basically, to get what it is that we really want? Man, we could camp out there. Today, we still preach that. We still preach Christianity like an equation. This plus this equals this. If you're all in with God, and you do this, it will lead to victory. It will lead to abundance. It will do this. If I am all in and I do these behaviors, then I will be victorious. I will win my next matches. I will have more numbers. This is, this is how I will be rewarded. I will receive that blessing. And so it, it is very hard. And then when that equation doesn't work out, because that's what we've taught people, they think the whole thing is bunk. I can't please God. I'm not sure he's even real. This isn't true. I don't see this playing out. Instead of the fact, this is what he's trying to tell them. It's not about an ends to a mean. I am, I am the, I'm it. I am the end. I am the blessing. It's that relationship. And I promise you, when everything of your life is stripped away, at the end of the day, really and truly, that you will realize, no, he is the blessing. I can't do life without him. I can't take a breath without him. It is all about him. And this is what he's trying to teach them. Tell us what service or sacrifice we have to do, and we will do it for God, and then we'll be blessed because we have pressed all the necessary buttons. What work must we do to get you to give us what we want? And Jesus simply said, believe in me. 
They're saying, okay, we need to do something. And he's saying, no, you need to believe someone. It's not about doing something. It's about believing someone. If you really believe what I'm saying, you will understand it is about the person behind the miracle more than the product. I'm going to go to Romans 10 for just a minute. Because honestly, this is what he's been saying from the beginning. Romans 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness. He's talking about the Jewish people. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own what? According to that context, their own righteousness. So you can read it like that, okay? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They thought they could earn it. Instead of understanding The standard of perfection is God's righteousness, right? Remember the rich young ruler? What must I do to be saved, right? And he says, oh, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? Why? Because only God is good. That's our standard. The standard of goodness is God. It's perfection. And they didn't, because they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law righteousness to everyone who believes. What does that say? For Christ is the end of the old covenant. All righteousness ends in who? In him. I am the fulfillment of the entire old Testament. I am the fulfillment of those things. He is trying to get them to understand a new covenant is coming in. It is not a conditional covenant with expectations and stipulations. It's not that. You couldn't do that. And so in mercy and grace, I have come down. He's going to tell them, I am the bread coming down from heaven. There is a new way happening here. And he is saying, I am the completion of all of these things. He's been telling them that from the beginning, has he not? Think about it. I'm going to take two minutes and then you'll know. At the beginning... Remember, we had the whole scene, bridegroom, the wedding of Cana. What did he do? He replaced the water from the ceremony cleansing jars with what? Wine, representing the new covenant. How about cleansing the temple? What was he telling him? Destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up again. Because what? I am the temple. There will never be another human structure containing the glory of God. I am the temple. A matter of fact, I am the perfect sacrifice. It all ends with me. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you do not have hope because you're Jew. You have hope if you are born again. Samaritan woman, you're not hopeless. Why? Because I am the living water. I am these things. And then he goes on the The official son, I'm the word. I'm the logos. I speak and it happens. He goes to the pools of Bethesda. He says, I'll give mercy to whoever I give mercy to. I am equal with God. I am Lord of the Sabbath. He feeds the 5,000. Yes, I am the prophet 
The words of God are in my mouth. Listen to me. He walks on the water. Read Job 9. 9, 8. Job 9, 8. Um, so, I mean, there's all kinds of things there. We're going to, when we come back in two weeks, we're going to look at this whole discourse that he has with the Jewish leaders. But I want you to, the main thing I want you to get is look what he's trying to teach the entire time. I'm God. I am the source of all things. I have come down to absolutely fulfill the old covenant and offer you a new covenant of my blood. You couldn't do it. I have come to do it. And I'm going to offer, I am the bread of life. If you believe in me, you will have life. You will eat my flesh, meaning my flesh will be a sacrifice for you. Do we spend in the United States of America the majority of our time wanting what Jesus has to offer or do we want Jesus? Do we want him? Because this is the same problem they were having in the day. Because they're going to say, hey, um, well, Moses gave us food in the wilderness. What they're saying is, well, if you're the prophet, he did it for 40 years. We've only had one lunch from you. We need to see. And, and man, they have a long way to go. But that is the question. Why do you go to church? Why do you do the things you do? Are you still having that old covenant mentality, that debtor's mentality, that if you please God, you will be blessed? Or you just want God? You just want that relationship with God? Because that's what it's about. He's living, and he wants a relationship, and he wants to abide with you. And so that, that is the question. We'll, we'll continue on. You can read ahead. We're going to finish John chapter 6, and we're going to keep going. It might take us two years to do John. Okay. I mean, where you got to go? Where you got to be? I mean, come on. Th this is Bible study. This is not church. All right? It's not topical. I get to do whatever I want. And we're just going to walk through it, a word or a phrase at a time. It's amazing. And feel free to do that yourself. And send me your insights on email. I would love to see, uh, you know, because we're going to find out later in the scripture that God teaches each person individually. And so that's the beauty of the word of God. And so just keep coming and we'll do this together because the word of God needs to abide in you. It does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. God, I thank you that, uh, I thank you that you're personal. I really do. Lord, I thank you. I'm, I'm going to hold on to some things today. Lord, I'm holding on to the fact that uh, you see me. I'm never out of your sight, although sometimes I think you might have forgotten me. And sometimes we feel like we're alone in the dark. We don't understand. The question why just echoes. But Lord, I'm so thankful that I don't need to know why because I know the who. And I think that's your point in all of this is that you are the source of all things. That those who come to you will never die. And that you will raise them up on the last day. And though for a little while we may tarry here, oh, the glorious hope that we have. And so God, I pray that 
for women that are in a struggle, that they would just know that you see them, you care about them, you're going to use the struggle to bring clarity, to draw them closer. You did not do it to them, but you will use it for them. And that you want to draw us into a deeper personal relationship because, Lord, you are the source of all things. There is nothing we could need that you cannot say, I am. And God, I pray that you would change our thinking, change our mentality. We are loved. We are in Christ Jesus. We are the sons and daughters of Jesus. We are loved because we're yours, period. And that loving relationship will produce fruit. We don't strive to work for something that is a gift. And so may we walk in that beauty. Lord, be with these women as we have some time off, not time off from you, but I pray, God, that they would get out in nature and they would allow these, these thoughts to just be meditations in their heart and their mind as they enjoy um, really the blessings that you have bestowed on us. And so we worship you today, the one and only God, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.